0: to be home. Um, At the beginning of a lot of Paul's letters, he would uh, thank God for people, um, the people he was writing to, and I think this morning it's more than appropriate that I begin that way because when I look out, I see uh, I see family, I see friends, Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders. Mr. Ruby, you're still the best. Um, Awana leaders, youth group leaders, A lot of people here who have poured your life into mine. Um, You celebrated good times with me. You've prayed me through difficult times. You've taken an interest in my life. And uh, I know I'm not always the most expressive guy in the world, but uh, I just wanted to say thank you. And I thank God for you. And this morning, I hope in some small way that I can Bless you, and when I say bless you, I don't mean just to impart some interesting facts to your mind, to fill your mind with some, some notions, but to impart truth to you, to fill your soul with God. Like Paul said to the Ephesians, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. After all, God didn't give us his word just to give us ideas. He gave us his word to give us truth, and that truth is to feed us and to feed us with himself. To give us life, his very own. So let's pray. Lord, you know I stand as inadequate for the truths before me. And you know this sad little text is not enough. So I ask, Lord, that you would drive your word deep into the hearts of your people by your spirit and you would do a great work despite me. I thank you so much for what you've done for us and for the people in front of me. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, taking a place front and center and resting at the core and the heart of Paul's understanding of salvation is the mystical and wonderful truth of the believers' union with Christ. It is a truth for our minds to wrap themselves around and for our hearts to embrace. One of the ways in which Paul expresses it is in the phrase, in Christ, which covers the pages of his letters. He writes in Romans 6:1 that believers have been baptized into Christ. And it becomes clear as you go through Romans 6 that for Paul, this means that the believer's identity has been woven into the fabric of Christ's own, so that what is true of Jesus is also true of his people. And this union finds its central focus in the death, on the one hand, and the resurrection of Christ. So for Paul, the Christian is mystically, and as a result, practically participates in Christ's death and resurrection. That's why he can write in Galatians 2.20, perhaps the greatest words ever penned by a follower of Jesus, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's two parts to this statement. Union with Christ in death, and union with Christ in life. That's the whole message. Christ's death. Christ's life. So let's get started and jump into it. Let's start at the beginning. Christ's death. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, says Paul. But obviously, he's still alive, or he wouldn't be writing the letter, right? So we got to ask ourselves, what does he mean? Obviously, he has something in mind here beyond physical death. And I think that our answer can be found in Galatians 5.24. He sheds light on this previous phrase. He says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we see for Paul that death with Christ means the execution of the flesh. Now when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not particularly talking about skin, bone, muscle, eyes, ears, and all that. When he uses the word flesh, he's speaking of the natural, sinful condition of humanity. At its root, it's a disposition of the heart turned from God living its life without regard for its maker and king who gives it life, breath, and a thousand other common graces which he sustains it every day. It's a refusal to lovingly yield and worship to the one who is supremely worthy. And it is a state of rebellion that manifests itself in all kinds of crooked and anti-creational behaviors. Well, how do I know that? Look at verses 19 and through 21 in chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Also consider Romans 1:18 through 32. You don't have to turn there. You can stay in Galatians 2. But in this passage, Paul describes the downward spiral of godless pagan nations. And for Paul, the downward spiral finds its beginning, its foundation, its root in their refusal to properly relate to God in thankful, obedient worship. And this is the natural disposition of humanity. It's how we're all born. Because when Adam sinned against God and rebelled against him, the head of our race, he corrupted his own nature and he passed his corruption down to all his children. It's a condition of hostility against God. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7, he explains that the carnal mind, the natural state of human nature, is is enmity against God and it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. For Paul, the wills of human beings are utterly powerless before sin. He uses the metaphor in Romans 6 of slavery. So if you could imagine that all people are born onto a slave galley, a slave galley steered by the powers of darkness, the demonic powers of this world, shackled by sin and rowing to the drumbeat of self. The condition can be described as a living death, because it's separated from life himself. Paul writes in Ephesians four eighteen that those who are not in Christ are separated from the life of God. As people were made to know God, were made to love God. In the famous words of Saint Augustine in the beginning of Confessions, he said, "You, O God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you." But in our natural state of slavery to sin, we're broken off from him, being his very enemies. It's a condition of darkness and hopelessness, enslaved to evil, and separated from life. But who should come riding into the darkness? Dang, this is my favorite part of the message. <laughs> Who should come riding into the darkness but the king of kings and lord of lords, love and life himself, the prince of peace, the one who is called faithful and true, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his person, our master, our savior, our king, Jesus, who is called the Christ. He lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died. He rose again on the third day, putting sin and death under his feet. He rose again and sits at the right hand of God. And there he is the king of this world and has poured out his spirit to show and express his dominion to say that he has absolute rights over this planet. He decisively defeated sin because when he hung on the cross, he absolved the guilt of sin for those who would believe in him by standing in our place, bearing the full wrath of punishment of God on sin. But not only that, but through his death, he took the chains of sin that held us and he broke them. The mastery that sin held over the wills of people was shattered. The power of sin was put to rest at the cross. So all who have believed into Christ now participate in Christ's victory over sin. You've been crucified with Christ. We can say along with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Sin no longer has mastery over me. Paul wrote in Romans 8.12 that we are no longer debtors to the flesh, so that when sin and temptation come to your door, put out its hand and say, you owe me, you just look and point him to the cross and say, no, I really don't. On the cross, he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. Now this doesn't mean that we don't sin. Paul obviously knew that. He wrote in Galatians 5.17 that the sinful nature still wars within us. But what he means is that all the resources we need to wage the war on sin are found in Christ. This is why Paul says that the life I live in the body, I live by faith. We have to live daily, hourly, minutely. We have to look to his strength to deal with the sin that always seeks to entangle us. We didn't get sl- saved so we can slug out a moral but stick battle on our own. We're saved by faith to live by faith, to put our confidence in His cross, to live a life of holiness to God. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live. Sin no longer has mastery over you. That's Christ's death. That's being united to Christ in death. But there's more. There's Christ's life. We not only participate in Christ's death, we participate in his resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 6, 5, If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The spirit of Christ lives in all who believe. The Christ life, the resurrection life, abides in us. Now, the Christ life that lives in us has two bound up but inseparable aspects to it. On the one hand, it transforms our relationship to God. And on the other hand, it transforms our relationship to other people. Its effect is both vertical and horizontal. So first, for the vertical. Participation in Christ's resurrection life, having his life in in us, means that we now enjoy the same relationship with God that Christ enjoys. We've been swept up into the very throne room of heaven and have been plunged deep into the love that God and Christ enjoy between one another. Paul wrote to the Galatians that we are sons of God, and because you are sons of God, he said, that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart crying out, Abba, Father. We can call God by the same affectionate name that Christ calls him because we share in Christ's life to love God, and to be loved by God. And it's something that Paul was deeply aware of and concerned with his people that they understood. And he prayed for them in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4, the same thing that I pray for you, that they would be able, that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It's a love that we know in the cross, Paul wrote to the Romans that God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the sign of the love of God. We see God's love in Jesus. Like Stuart Townsend wrote in his beautiful hymn, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. But God's love isn't just something that we see and know and understand. For Paul, it's something that lives in us. It's a bottomless reservoir of refreshing water, which we're invited to drink deeply of. He wrote in the Romans chapter 5, that same chapter that I quoted earlier. He said the love of God, the cross-shaped love of God, has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the Christ life who is given to us. It's the bread that fills us and sustains us, especially in the hard times. 10th Avenue North, a band that I, I like a lot, wrote a, wrote a really beautiful song called Times, capturing it. And some of it goes like this, a person speaking to God says to God, I hear you say, and these are God's words to the person. My love is over, it's underneath. It's inside, it's in between. The times you doubt me, when you can't feel. The times that you've questioned, is this for real? The times you're broken, the times that you mend. The times you hate me, and the times that you bend. My love is over, it's underneath. It's inside, it's in between. These times you're healing. And when your heart breaks, the times that you feel like you've fallen from grace, the times you're hurting, the times that you heal, the times you go hungry and are tempted to steal. In times of confusion and chaos and pain, I'm there in your sorrow under the weight of your shame. I'm there through your heartache. I'm there in the storm. My love, I will keep you by my power alone. I don't care where you've fallen or where you have been. I'll never forsake you. My love never ends. In the great words of Paul, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To love God and to be loved by God, to know God and to be known by God, it stands at the heart of Christianity. And sometimes I hear us talking about salvation as though it could be something separated from God himself. And some go so far as to treat it as a ticket out of hell they can take out of God's hand and turn their back and live how they want. And those who treat God's grace like that only pointedly demonstrate that they never got off the slave ship to begin with the gift cannot be separated from the giver. Yes, Jesus said in John 10:28, 20, I give them eternal life, but you can't miss John 14:6 where he said, I am the life. He said in John 17:3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This stands at the heart of human need, like Augustine said, as I've already quoted, you, O God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. More than anything else in the world, people need God. John Piper, the famous pastor, writer, and speaker, and if you don't get anything out of this message and it just completely flops, just get this. Get a John Piper book. (laughs) Go to desiringgod.org. I started listening and reading his stuff about four years ago, and it's, uh, it's been a huge blessing. You'll grow. But he said this in a book um, to preachers. He said, the greatness and the glory of God are relevant. It does not matter if surveys turn up a list of perceived needs that does not include the supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace. That is the deepest need. Our people are starving for God like newborn infants, cries for the mu- milk of its mother. The born-again believer cries out for God. He's been the cry of the hearts of his people down the centuries. The psalmist wrote, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He also wrote, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Paul wrote to the Philippians, saying, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. A song in the Irish monastic tradition of the 8th century expresses the same cry. Maybe you know it. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Or consider the words of Alison Krauss, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. Or you know the famous worship song, You are the strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Desiring God and delighting in God stands at the heart also of glorifying God. In the famous words of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We attribute honor to what we delight in. And to supremely delight in God is to worship God. So participation in the resurrection of Christ, having Christ's life living in us, transforms our relationship with God from one of hostility to delightful love. But not only does he transform the vertical, he also transforms the horizontal. He's given us the spirit of Christ, the resurrection life of his son, so that we can embody his heart to others. After all, the first fruit of the spirit is love. And love for Paul is not a frilly, vague notion. For Paul, love is most truly displayed and defined in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. In the words of the Apostle John in 1 John three sixteen, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Love in the Bible is cross-shaped, and it's to shape the life of the Christian. One writer put it like this, the cross is not only what Jesus does, but what he calls his disciples to. Following Jesus means not only the faith or acknowledgement that salvation comes that way, but living out that faith by following the same way ourselves, the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus' followers, the way of reckless, self-forgetting love that places its happiness in the good of others, even its enemies. The way of humility, which considers the interests of others to be more important than the interests of self. The way of suffering, which considers the cost and goes ahead anyway. This is the road that leads up to Calvary. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the Christian. If you want to be great, if you want to be great, become the slave of all. This is Christ's life. It doesn't hold or cling to privilege or entitlement but looks to him who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but humbled himself and suffered the humiliating agony of the cross. This is so inseparable from being a Christian that John can say that whoever doesn't display love in their life doesn't know God and has no eternal life in them. And if you remember the story in John 20 of the resurrected Lord standing before his disciples, still bearing the marks of his reckless love in his body, said to them, as the Father sent me, I also send you. And he just sat back and said, wow, that's a tough act to follow. (laughs) To live out the love of the cross. But once again, it's to be lived out by faith in the Son of God. Jesus doesn't save us simply to point us to a cross too heavy for us to pick up. He doesn't draw us to himself to crush us under an unbearable weight. No, what did he say? He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the burden is light because he carries it along with us. We carry it by his strength. We must look daily, hourly, minutely to his resources, to his spirit, to his resurrection life, to live out his love. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said this, If you wear the livery of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains, There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids a man to carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. His service is life, peace, and joy. Oh, that you would enter it at once. So as a brief summary, we've died with Christ so we can live with him. The mastery of sin over us has been broken by his cross. We've been reconciled to God, enjoying a loving relationship with him, and are now freed by his power to express the love of his cross to others. And I just want to close by describing a scene a really powerful scene from a movie. Les Miserables um, takes place, I think, in 18th century France, somewhere around there. But um, anyway, it begins with, a, with an ex-convict who just got out of prison, and he's traveling a long distance by foot to meet up with a parole officer. And uh, one night, he gets to a town. He's sleeping on the ground and decides to ask for hospitality from a priest. He knocks on the priest's door. The priest lets him in, gives him a hot meal, knowing he's a convict, giving him a warm bed to sleep in. But that man, night, the man gets up, goes into the priest's closet, and steals his silverware, puts it in his bag. But while he was doing it, the priest comes out and sees him doing it. So the man, knowing he's caught, socks the priest in the face, knocks him out, takes the bag, and splits. The next morning, the priest is is working in his in his yard, and. In come march some soldiers, triumphantly, having the man in, in shackles, and having the bag of silver in hand. He walks up to, uh, walks up to the priest, hands it to him, and says, here's your, here's your silver, sir. We've had this, our eye on this guy for a while. He actually tried to tell us that you gave it to him. And the priest looked at the soldier and said, of course I gave it to him. Mind you, the priest still has the mark of his black eye on his face. And then he looks at the man and says, why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was really foolish of you. They're worth a lot of money. He tells his housekeeper, go get the candlesticks and put them in the bag. And the soldiers leave. The housekeeper leaves. And it's just the man and the priest. And the priest walks up to him, pulls back his hood that he was wearing, and looks him in the eye and says, Jean Valjean, for that was his name. You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've purchased your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and pride and jealousy and evil. And now I give you back to God. And that's all I'm here to say to you this morning. Christian, you no longer belong to evil. You've been ransomed from sin and its mastery by the blood of the Son of God, who has now has given you back to God to enjoy God and to spread his love for others. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And the life you live in your body, you are to live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Lord, unless you do a work in our hearts,